Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Movies. As always, I'm Johnny Mockney, and I know I say this quite often, and it really has lost all meaning by now, but today I have a very special episode for you. This is the second anniversary of when I first started this podcast. Uh, it is April 22nd, exactly two years ago today, I released the first episode in which I discussed Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan with Matt Ottinger, the host of Quiz Busters and previous Jeopardy contestant and the videographer for Okemos High School. Uh, just an incredibly accomplished person and sort of a local celebrity here in Okemos, Michigan. So um, we did that episode all that time ago, I explained the concept and um, it happened. And then obviously for the first anniversary, uh, he returned to talk about That Thing You Do, the Tom Hanks classic. And by George, what do you know? We are at two years now already. So he was generous enough to lend me his time again and come back on to celebrate in this tradition that we now have of every we are movies anniversary and we talked about the 1980 film the stuntman written and directed by richard rush starring peter o'toole steve railsback and barbara hershey honestly just an incredible film i we were careful not to necessarily spoil the ending of the movie although I can't recommend enough that you just go into this movie blind and see it without knowing um, anything about the movie preferably uh, I, I had that experience and I, I think it's an experience obviously you can never get back so You've been warned. <laughs> You've had my wholehearted recommendation. Hopefully you go see the movie if you haven't already and you come back and listen to this episode on The Stuntman, written and directed by the late great Richard Rush. I should mention, while we don't spoil the ending of this movie, we do kind of offhandedly spoil the ending of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. So you've been warned in that case too. And without any further ado, please enjoy this very special anniversary episode of We Are Movies. Well, I appreciate you coming back. Oh, this is great. It's been, yeah, exactly two years since I, because you, you were the first guest and I wanted you to be the first guest. I appreciate that. Specifically. And I, I remember I brought my laptop and my two microphones to your office. That's right. I think we had mic issues on the first day. I, I can't but. remember. We, I, I just, I, I can picture doing it in the studio. We did it in the TV studio. Yes. That yep. little table that we had. And exactly. we talked about Star Trek two, which is <laughs> the greatest movie ever made. I love saying that. It's absolutely my favorite movie. I realize there might be movies that are a little bit better than Star Trek II, but sure. it's fun to call it the greatest movie ever made. Oh, it certainly is. And I, I think it's good to anchor high when you say <laughs> yes. an opinion that you feel strongly about, because right. then maybe people can meet you in the middle. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Recorded at Citizen that same... Kane is number two. <laughs> right. I think that's, that's even better, that your second favorite movie is... The movie that's considered the greatest of all time. Right, right, right. I, th I think that's great. It means you have good taste. It's Thank acknowledging, you so much. It's acknowledging, hey, the greatest movie of all time is up there, but <laughs> Star Trek II beats it. Um, so there's a bit of a interesting story 
Uh, yeah. I, I, did you want to tell it? This is this is incredible. Yeah. So you okay. you picked the stunt man. Well, you 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 threw out a couple of movies. You mentioned the stunt man, and you said that I would like this movie. Right. Um, I remember you saying that, and then I had actually never heard of it. The, right. Like. I, I like to think most of the time I've at least heard of <laughs> the good ones, but, sure. um, and I, I hadn't heard of this director, Richard Rush. I watched the movie just uh, Sunday. So a couple days ago, and I, I was looking up this Richard Rush. I looked at his filmography. I had seen only one other movie that he had done and I didn't know it was him. And yesterday morning we wake up and I see an, uh, an article saying Richard Rush, director of the stuntman passes away just incredible just an yeah. incredible coincidence to see a director i had never heard of in a movie i had never heard of which suddenly became relevant to me and then to see that that director so this is this is dedicated in his memory absolutely <laughs> and i want to make it i think we, we need to make it clear we did not plan this right yes it just it just happened that way I will get into, you know, I, I have so many thoughts about the movie. It was okay. such a such a strange, uh, different thing. And Absolutely. That's why I thought you would like it. Yes. And honestly, I have to say, I think I it's proved that I've underestimated you and the movies <laughs> that you would choose. Because it really <laughs> threw me for a loop. And I think this being the third movie we've done together after Star Trek II and That Thing You Do, none of these movies are like each other. <laughs> no, 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 no. So take me back to the first time you saw this movie, what the context was, how your feelings were. I, I hate to be that guy who says when I was your age, <laughs> but I was about your age because I saw it in the theater. I was, I was in college uh, and this was a great time to have sort of discovered movies. My, my parents, it wasn't like we didn't, we, we weren't allowed to go to movies. That was not part of my entertainment growing up. I was a television boy. I went to TV shows. I watched TV shows. Uh, so it wasn't really until I went to college that I started seeing movies. And fortunately, working for the entity on MSU's campus that showed movies, I was actually watching some of the great movies in classes. Um, so I'm discovering film while I'm, I'm literally discovering film while I'm a college student. And there's a lot of movies that came out in that period that I truly discovered. I, I went to the theater, it was first release, no idea. And that was that, that's actually the bigger point. No idea what I'm in for. No Entertainment Tonight, no Hollywood Reporter, no Entertainment Weekly, none of that stuff. No previews, no, no Siskel and Ebert really, they had, they had started, I guess. No awareness of what the movie is going to be. My favorite example of that is Airplane. I went into Airplane <laughs> thinking, God is my witness that it was a serious film. <laughs> and of course, it's not like I kept thinking that. Was it the, went, was it the white went, zone, red zone moment? that Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Wait a minute, there's something wrong here. Yeah. And of course, it's just an absolute delight. You just have, you're just, you just, oh my gosh, I didn't expect this at all. And Stuntman is right up there. I mean, in the first sequence, in the first, uh, like a friend of mine says, in the first 30 minutes, it's just sensational movie making hmm. and you don't know where your head is you have no idea where this movie is going you have a general idea that there's going to be a film in it somewhere because it's called the stuntman and it's got the clapboard as the poster and everything but bang 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 you're constantly being surprised at one thing or another before we settle down and actually have a movie and to experience that 
for the first time in a way as you did since you weren't familiar with this thing hmm. is a spectacular experience yeah certainly well and i knew very little going into it which was great i knew it was a movie called the stuntman i saw on imdb there was a picture of an explosion uh-huh. and i knew it starred peter o'toole and that was yes pretty yes. much all that i knew and um so, I mean, you can imagine my surprise when I found out the star of the movie was Steve Railsback, uh, first of all. <laughs> but, um, that's not to discount Peter O'Toole, of course. No, yeah, exactly. It wasn't a Peter. Well, I mean, uh, but on the other hand, Steve Railsback. <laughs> At the time, he was really hot because he had been in a TV movie about Charles Manson, Helter Skelter. And this was on the heels of that. They were a few years apart. And... It just, he just seemed to have a really, really, really exciting, promising career <laughs> that ended up really not going there. He worked steadily. He's mm. got lots of credits, but like I like to say sometimes, steadily but unspectacularly. No, He didn't really make a big uh, a splash. I think w- one of the reasons for that, everybody was really impressed when he ch- played Charles Manson. Yeah. And then you watch him in Stuntman and say, oh, okay. <laughs> That's the level he's always on. Right. <laughs> that's his. That's his go-to. Yeah. <laughs> he starts there and then gets crazy. Uh, so it was. It, it was interesting to see that this guy didn't have range, but boy, in that wheelhouse. Yes. You're fascinated. Yes. Well, and I. So I know Steve Rails back from I think one other film, <clears throat> and that is the uh, 1980s uh, Toby Hooper film Life Force, which oh, is about okay. space vampires. Um, he's the main role in that movie. He, he and Peter Firth are, are the leads. That movie's famous for the fact that it was one of Patrick Stewart's first movies. Ah. And there's a moment where Patrick Stewart is possessed by one of the space vampires and is mind controlling Steve Railsback. Uh, into... <laughs> Would you listen to yourself? <laughs> this, this sounds, I know, this sounds like I'm making it up as I go along. Mind controls Steve Railsback into like leaning forward and kissing the possessed uh, body of Patrick Stewart. So to this day, whenever people ask Patrick Stewart who his first on-screen kiss was, he says Steve Railsback. That's marvelous. (laughs) (laughs) I did did not know that story. We've talked before about the fact that I really, a huge gap in my knowledge is scary movies. I'm just not a fan of horror or the sci-fi that's of the horror type. So I don't, I don't know that world. If it, I guess, convinces you at all, I can happily say Life Force is not scary. <laughs> well, okay, there's that, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, anyway, I, so I always recommend that people watch the movie before they listen to this. But oh, yes. I guess for clarity's sake, we should give a bit of a synopsis of the film. Sure. Uh, we start out meeting the Steel, Steve Railsback character. He's obviously on the run from the law. Through uh, accidental circumstances, he causes the death of a stuntman in a film and uh, finds his escape from the law in becoming part of the film crew. Now he doesn't find his way this way. Peter O'Toole, Peter O'Toole's character who is the director of the film that we're making in the movie uh, takes him and makes him the new stuntman. It's, It's in his interest because he doesn't want it to get out that a stuntman died on his shoot and it's obviously in Steve Railsback's interest to hide out from the police by being part of this film crew where he can be uh, inconspicuous. And uh, we see him becoming the stuntman as he makes, uh, as, he, as he becomes a stuntman in this film. And we see lots and lots of the film within the film being made and 
Peter O'Toole, guiding him in such a way that it's very hard to tell what's real and what's not real, which is really the ultimate point of the film. What's what's reality and what's not reality. Barbara Hershey is the love interest. Um, neat supporting cast of people who are part of that movie making world, whether within or without. Uh, Alex Rocco, who I love, is the is the is the town sheriff who's always angry about the about the film crew being in town. Uh, just, just it's a it's a lot of fun in as a movie about making movies. Yes, no, I agree. And b- before we get into this real quick, you mentioned that your favorite movie about making a movie and your favorite movie about making a show both start Peter O'Toole. What was the, the other one? The other one is something called My Favorite Year, which is not real well known either. And that's disappointing to me because I think it's magnificent. It's a, but at, where Stuntman was a very, I mean, it's got humor. It's got everything. It's, it's a crazy action thriller. My favorite year is practically a situation comedy. It's a very simple, light, goofy, silly movie about the making of a 50s type show like your show of shows, like a Sid Caesar kind of television program. It's it's through the eyes of a young writer who idolizes an Errol Flynn type character who's played by O'Toole, who is in town to be a guest on this variety show. And it's the week that they spend together because O'Toole's character is an is a, a past his prime lush and the the main character mark lynn baker's character has to keep him sober through this week of 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 tv making uh and it's again it's it's i think it came out a little bit after this but it's about the same time uh okay. basically one where you know you just you just knew you were watching peter o'toole and you didn't really care what else happened <laughs> so i'm gonna first talk about my initial reaction to this movie because okay. I, I I went through some stages. Um, <laughs> I, I I sat down. I actually I got the DVD here. This is I'm holding up the DVD, the Severn DVD. And I'm uh, just trying to think where I've got mine because it's around here somewhere. It's, uh, there's there's mine is the deluxe edition. We have to talk about the deluxe edition at some oh, point. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I yeah I, I got the uh, I got the Normie edition, okay. uh, which is only visible to those paying the monthly fee for the the visual version of this podcast. Um, that that's not true. Uh, (laughs) But now people are going to look for it. So I watched it. And as you kind of alluded to the first act of the movie, I really don't know where it's going. Uh, There's this huge theme of chance, uh, particularly in that opening scene, which I think is a masterpiece in of itself. And a lot of that. So I think the first time I watched it and I, I, my letterboxd review, I wrote for it right afterwards was just, I, wasn't sure what to make of this. I didn't know what the genre was because uh, it's clearly trying to be funny sometimes. It, it, and But it, it also like it has the look and the feel of this sort of dreamlike, uh, like a Alejandro Jodorowsky type of movie, which is a, a name for the real pretentious film people out there. Uh, I'm with, nodding knowingly, but I don't <laughs> know what you're saying. Well, it's like, it's got this like orange look to it, very like sun soaked. I, eventually I just kind of gave myself up to the movie and I was like, okay, wherever you go, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> and it, it ended and I really liked it. I still wasn't quite sure what to make of it. And then I watched it again with the audio commentary. And I think by the end of that, I, I, it, it hit me that I think it's kind of a masterpiece. Like I oh, think it is a, oh. a perfect example of storytelling. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this opening scene first because I think I, I wrote down Pauline Kael uh, described it as Mother Nature's Rube Goldberg opening. 
<laughs> that's all that's like that's good i yeah. like that i had read the roger ebert review and if before we did this and he was not thrilled with it he 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 saw some things to like but he was uh, overall he thought he felt cheated was his word oh okay that's marvelous the mother nature rube goldberg opening yeah 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 because that's it starts with a bird which um it it goes into starting with a logo that has a bird. And as Richard Rush mentions in the commentary, they made up the bird logo so they could transition into the bird on screen, um, which is great on its own. But sure, it, yeah, you see all the series of things happening, just chance things happening that end up with the police uh, chasing Steve Railsback's character to where he ends up on the bridge, to where he ends up on the film set. And also very early on something that for some reason I hadn't caught when Peter O'Toole makes his initial entrance into the movie where he's not on screen and he's in this helicopter. It is the perfect movie star entrance into a film where oh, yeah. you don't see his face. You see a point of view shot of him eating an apple and the apple lifts into frame. And then he throws the apple out the window and then that, that leads into the, the Rube Goldberg machine. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously eventually he shows up. I, I wanted to mention because uh, it says on the back that uh, Peter O'Toole was nominated for best actor for this yeah. movie. Um, it ended up being one of his most more well-known roles. I only knew Peter O'Toole as a guy in historical movies, uh, pretty much. <laughs> I, I, I well, thought... he exploded on the scene in Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, right. that that the world discovers Peter O'Toole in this sweeping epic, and that's where you that's where his head that's where you are in his head. Yes, and I'd seen he him is in... in your head. I'm sorry. Right, and he's in you know Shakespeare adaptations. I think even towards the end of his life, he was in Troy uh, with Colin Farrell, like a lot of these big epics. And so it was bizarre because I always thought like it, it's beneath him to just play a modern day person. <laughs> oh, he he didn't say no a lot, yeah, especially oh. later in his career. He 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 made some, but they were always interesting choices. Oh, That's, that, yeah. definitely. He yeah. did a I forget the name, but he did a comedy with Harold Ramis. Um, it's slipping my mind, but I'll remember Ooh. it later. Uh, and I remember I thinking, that. Yeah. Yeah. at that point, I had only seen two movies with him, Lawrence of Arabia and that movie. <laughs> and so it was, <laughs> you know, it was quite a jump. So what do you think about his performance? Because he is that first build actor. He's the, mm -hmm. he's the big actor in the movie. Right. Um, I would equate him to, there's sometimes those roles like the engineer in Miss Saigon or something where, they're not the main character, but they're the last person to bow in the uh, curtain <laughs> sure, call. Sure, Because we know yeah. that they were the main attraction. Yeah, kind we, of. It, it's like he obviously gets top billing, but he's also just as obviously not our entry into the film. We're following the Lucky, the, uh, the, 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 the guy who is nicknamed Lucky on the set eventually, the, Steel, the Steve Railsback character, and watching everything uh, happen through his eyes. And, you know, basically, I mean some of the stuff is brilliant and some of the stuff is a little bit on the nose. <laughs> uh, Peter O'Toole is such a Christ-like figure. I mean, he keeps coming up, you know, coming down from above. Yes. Such a Christ-like figure. They literally named him cross. I mean, <laughs> that's a little bit on the nose, <laughs> but, but you know, when you've got this huge, huge movie star and he was by no, by, by without question, a huge, huge star, you, you, show him off and that's exactly he's always coming down in the helicopter or he's yes. coming down in the crane and he's always got that wonderful mysterious 
point of view, then you always know he knows just a little bit more than anybody else in the room. Yes, and he's manipulating everybody oh, a little bit. Absolutely, yes. Um, he, it's a glorious performance. Oh, definitely. And I think he perfectly plays a an unlikable, likable character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where I, I understand why he's an unpleasant guy. Sometimes. Like, I understand that he is not acting in a way that human beings should <laughs> for the, <laughs> the well-being of others. Uh, but at the same time, I, I like seeing him do everything he does <laughs> and I want to see him do it more. Um, and, and you can, you can really tell uh, Richard Rush was not a, a wildly successful director, but you can really tell he's clearly channeling himself. He wants to be, he, he wants, he wants to be Peter O'Toole, Peter O'Toole's character when he grows up. Yes. It's clear that that's the that's the uh, the avatar for Rich, for Rush himself. I mean, there's a lot about O'Toole's character that you can see in stories of the great directors. Uh, there's stories of John Ford doing duplicitous things to get the right things out of his actors. Stanley yeah. Kubrick, you know, like uh, so that's that's not anything new. One thing I wanted to mention about the crane is he often does descend on this crane into the shot, and you never see. The, where the crane comes from it's always <laughs> just right. right coming from the sky yes <laughs> and it's 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 like omnipotent it just it just it's wherever he needs to be the crane is there talking <laughs> about the great directors he has said in interviews that he was channeling david lean I, his, his, yes his director in in uh, in uh, lawrence of arabia now what do we make of that is the question <laughs> 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 and, you know every director thinks he's god and this is just a this is just a takeoff on that and the whole crew, the fictional crew that's working for him, also treat him like God. I mean, they'll they'll tease him sometimes, but they always know he's got the final word. There's this great scene when they're watching the dailies, and Barbara Hershey's character is whispering about how great he is. And he's annoyed because she's whispering, and he throws yeah. her out. And she's not <laughs> defending herself by saying, but I was saying how good you are. She just says, okay, and she leaves. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. just, that's the power he has. I, I love there's also a moment there's a, a writer in the film who's who's one of my favorite characters and the writer right. he introduces this uh how would you describe the the prop that he brings in <laughs> i wouldn't describe the prop because you know i i, I work I, I work i work in, in a school district oh it. sure yeah okay so it yes. is it is an erotic piece of art <laughs> he, uh he, as he's as he says in the in the film it's 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 correct to the period of the world war one battle movie that we're watching it's a war film that we're watching within within the movie the movie he's making is a world is a, is a period war film and it's yes. a, a girl and a bear and the girl swings let's say into the bear yes yes and uh that's a good that's a great way to put it <laughs> okay and, there you go but and there's a, just a wonderful little moment between because i think uh somebody described their characters saying um, that the writer is benign at the level that Peter O'Toole is dangerous. They they level each other out yes, a little bit. Yes. And, I and there's love, respect on both sides, I think. Yes. Because obviously, like, he's kind of, you know, he's really just like stressing the writer out because he's making him do rewrites and all kinds of stuff. But when he entered, there's this great moment when he introduces that prop mm -hmm. and it looks like he's. Peter O'Toole's kind of making fun of him a little bit. And then they embrace at the end. Like he laughs and they hug. And it's yeah. such a sweet moment. The line, he's welcome to the same movie or yes. something along those lines. Well, welcome, welcome to the same picture. And right. you can tell that's the, he, he, has, he has solved the director's problem. 
Yes. The actor, we should mention the actor because it's really interesting. His name's Alan Garfield and he's been around forever, but it's, but there's a weird little bit of trivia that he's not billed as right. Alan Garfield in this movie. He's billed under his real name, which is Alan Gorwitz. Gorwitz. Yeah. Because right around that time, it's, it's an interesting story. Right around that time, his father had passed away and he thought as a tribute to his father that he would go back to his real name. And so there's a couple of films in the early 80s where he's credited as Alan Gorwitz. But that didn't stick. He went back to Alan Garfield. And uh, again, though, it's a character actor. When we say the name Alan Garfield, we don't necessarily conjure up, oh, yeah, that guy. But when you see a picture of him, you say, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, well, I, I possibly had the stuntman been a bigger hit. Yes. And if he had maybe his performance had been more noticed, maybe it would have stuck and he'd have to go by that. Yes, um, exactly. Exactly. Have you ever it heard? It was throwing me because, you know, I'm looking, I, I watched it. I hadn't watched it in years and I'm watching it now and I'm thinking, well, that's Alan Garfield, but I didn't see his name in the credits. That's kind of hmm. odd. And I sort of had to go back and piece all of that together. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, I, did I, this is a, a brief digression but um, a lot like like this like this show doesn't have those <laughs> exactly there's no there's no quality manager here. It's just, <laughs> just me i'm not gonna get fired for that's right <laughs> but um there's uh have you ever heard of the actor brett halsey he, yes um, he, he was in quite a few kind of american b movies he was in the the fly Two, uh mm-hmm. some stuff like that and then he went to italy and he did some spaghetti westerns and and stuff like that for a while and uh, he he tells a story that when he did um, a movie called Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die, okay. uh, which is an amazing title. He decided he wanted to go by a different name. And so he fought to go to get billed as Montgomery Wood, uh, which just sounds like a, a movie star name of the era. <laughs> yes, right? it does. Sounds like a guy who does Westerns. Yes. And that ended up being one of the most successful spaghetti Westerns. And he's in his own words, he was like, and then I had no choice because Montgomery Wood became a big movie star. So I had to, <laughs> I had to start going by Montgomery Wood now because I was the star of that big Western. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah he, we're talking about the, 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 the writer character is, is, is a marvelous, not really foil, but, but a marvelous companion to, to uh, Peter O'Toole's director character. Yes, uh, he is. And um, I also, obviously, I want to talk about Barbara Hershey's character, um, because I think uh, they they describe her in the commentary multiple times. She says that she's playing a dream girl, um, quote unquote, which I mean, it's very clear. There's this amazing scene um, when she's inside the doors of what Peter O'Toole refers to as the looking glass in reference to Alice through the looking glass. And um, uh, our hero, Steve Railsback, is looking at her through, and it's like so, it looks so perfectly dreamy. There's lens flares. Um, and it's clear that, you know, it's just this kind of, he's admiring from her, her from afar, and she's this great, she's, I, I, she, I think it's applied she's a, She's sort of a semi-famous actress. Not right. A, she's not a she's not a superstar. This is something right. that's going to help her career. Yes, and that's one thing I didn't even realize till I watched it the second time with the commentary. They set her up by showing her on a TV. That's right. She she. But the first time you it's like again like we were talking about the first time you don't see Peter O'Toole. Right. The first time you actually see Barbara Hershey, 
she's in a commercial on on a television set in the diner and the second time you see barbara hershey you don't realize it's barbara hershey right she shows up in old woman makeup yeah yeah um which is it was funny because i think that was one thing she shows up and i thought is that barbara hershey as an old woman (laughs) i but i was like no that'd be strange (laughs) that'd be a weird that'd be a weird (laughs) casting choice wouldn't it (laughs) this is the part where i i do drop i just brag that i I was able to meet Barbara Hershey. Really? Yes. Oh. I met her in uh, New Jersey at a, a, it was a convention slash uh, film festival. And I just, I got to talk to her a little bit about um, The Last Temptation of Christ, where she played okay. Mary Magdalene, sure. uh, working with Scorsese and stuff. And most other people asked her about beaches. I was going to say, if you were female, <laughs> you'd be asking her about beaches. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but she, I thought she was wonderful in this movie. Oh, yeah. And Dream Girl is really good because, you know, through the machinations of it being a fictional movie, she immediately falls for our scruffy little guy on the run, just yes. head over heels in love with Steve Railsback's character, who would not be somebody she should be anywhere near. And I love when, because they first meet when she uh, falls into the water in her old lady makeup. He saves her. She pulls the makeup off. And it's this just adorable little moment of her. She, like she's laughing and uh, he's going, wait, wait, I recognize you. And then she asks him to still carry her. Sure. Like into the shore so she can be rescued. There's also, it has nothing to do with the film, but it's just one of those moments that you just, you, it, it's, this is what happens in the movies. We're watching her peel off all that disgusting latex and, and, you know, pulling, pulling, pulling. And then we cut away to Railsback. We go back to her and she looks perfect. She <laughs> looks absolutely perfect. Yeah. And of course that you realize there's no way that really happened. There should be but, parts still hanging off. Exactly. You know? <laughs> suddenly bang, it's Barbara Hershey. And that's yeah. not how real life works. Right. Of course. Um, she does have a great line. I love when he's carrying her away, she leads her head back and she says, I am the movies. Yeah. Uh, and then also just one of my favorite. So this scene has two, she does two little subtle things that are really great where when he's carrying her and she's pretending to be unconscious and Peter O'Toole calls for her. You see her just spring up and hop out of his arms uh, <laughs> from this faraway shot, which is really great. And then uh-huh. also the moment where she's leaving and she turns and looks at him and says, that was really gallant rescuing an old lady like that and leaves. And uh, which a dream girl. She's just adorable in this. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think this is the type of relationship where somebody could look at the script and they could say, oh, that's one dimensional uh she just falls for this charles manson like guy (laughs) yeah uh and then he falls for her and things you know but but i think the movie creates a diegesis there's a word uh, for the kids at home (laughs) that that allows for me to accept that Mm -hmm. did you feel that way you can go one of two ways with this movie we uh i i don't i can't remember we were yeah we were talking uh while we're recording about roger ebert not liking it as much as as other critics did and his thing was he felt cheated you know when when you're watching a movie like this it sounds like you had what i think is the right reaction you just let it happen you just accept that all of these oddball things are going to happen because it's not real life it's a movie i can accept that she's going to be falling in love with him i can accept that we're covering up a murder in order to salvage our three days in this exotic location i you know i can accept that the town sheriff is too stupid to realize what's going on around him you know you have to accept an awful lot of stuff that in a lot of movies you wouldn't want to accept that suspension of disbelief this is a really good 
suspension of disbelief movie because another a, a, a similar point i was going to make this uh, i'll just stick it in here um some of the sequences some of the dramatic sequences that we see of the film are spectacular and they're like 10 minutes long yeah and you watch these elaborate things going on and there's some throwaway line about how well the director likes to do it all in one take (laughs) in reality that would never happen that would have been a million different takes to get all the different things you want in place and yes. even though this is a movie about making movies, you just got to skip over that. You just got to, okay, this is the way we're going with it. And let's see what happens. And I was going to mention that that's first apparent very early on when they're filming a beach scene, when yes. Steve Railsback first comes across and uh, the, you know, there's like a, um, some planes fly over these soldiers. They shoot at them. There's a lot of dust. When the dust clears, you see this horrible, gory sight where everyone's, you know, limbs are missing, heads are missing. And all and it terif- terrifies right. the, the audience of, of onlookers. Yes, all the onlookers. There's a moment, uh, like there's a girlfriend crying in her boyfriend's chest. And he's like, and then when he realizes it's fake, he's like, no, 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 look, look. And they all look and you see, oh, they're just faking. It's for the movie. And that's immediately where I thought, they wouldn't no. do that. No, <laughs> that's I, not how they would have done that right. scene. And for yes. a brief moment, because I was like, yeah, they wouldn't do it in the moment like that. And I thought, at first I thought, do they not know how movies are made? And I was like, well, <laughs> they're making a movie. So they clearly know how it's made. And that becomes a reoccurring thing throughout the movie. And I, I, it's one thing where, you know, I would feel the same as Roger Ebert if it maybe happened one time and it seemed out of place. Right. But since it's a reoccurring thing in this movie that these huge stunt sequences play out as if they are the sequence from for the movie it, you know as you mentioned a sequence that would require thousands of setups um it just boom 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 i guess they have a camera everywhere yeah absolutely uh, absolutely right. yeah. and then it, it, it's over but yeah that adds and it's like as we're watching it sometimes we're seeing it from the perspective of the movie and then sometimes we're seeing it outside of the perspective and seeing how they're how things are happening right well it, and and like, and that kind of plays into what you're saying about how the whole film is about what's what is reality. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't we're watching this spectacular action sequence on top of this hotel, um, and then somebody breaks through this window and a topless woman comes out saying, "Hey, get out of here!" And you're like, "Wait, is that <laughs> is that just a person that like they were just filming outside her window?" Yeah. And so there's those wonderful sequences, but then I also think. You know, if Peter O'Toole is Jesus or if he is God, the way that he's basically creating this reality, a, a similar thing, the, the thing that really threw me for a loop is when Steve Railsback is on the wing of a plane and we see it as a plane flying through the air. But then when the plane, when the driver, when the guy piloting the plane gets shot and it starts spinning around, we cut to it now just on a, a giant lazy Susan yeah. uh, spinning <laughs> it around. And I thought, is that how it's been the whole time? Were we seeing it from the perspective of what the movie will eventually be? And you just kind of, you just accept it. <laughs> yeah, you, you just you just have to, to enjoy it, yeah. Yeah, and I think that works obviously for thematically for the movie. The, the mm-hmm. fact that it obviously bothers him after his first sequence that he doesn't know what's happening. He says like, oh, it makes me feel like I'm going insane. Right, um, right. And it struck me the second time how much is set up that's so clever because the first confrontation on the bridge where the original stuntman ends up going off the edge in the car 
uh, a stunt that we don't actually see, which I thought okay. was great mm -hmm. because it makes you kind of doubt reality a bit. And at first, I assumed this was an economic decision. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, <laughs> really smart. Too expensive to, sh to shove the, the, the Dusselberg or whatever it was over the, over the edge of the bridge and watch that crash, yes. Exactly, yeah. Um, but then it happens because he threw something at the window, which cracked it. Mm -hmm. And he later says, you know, because he's a veteran, that when a man's coming at you, you assume he's trying to kill you. And so that plays into the entire movie because it's about Steve Railsback now um, being paranoid that Peter O'Toole is going to try to kill him. Right. Also, the ultimate stunt. Right. Yeah. And then also Peter O'Toole's first line in the whole movie when he's eating the apple, it's after a bird hits the windshield of the helicopter. The guy flying the helicopter says that bird's trying to kill us. And he says, why don't we ask the bird for his point of view? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's, it's like the entire movie is set that, up in that, those. That's that's what and and and, and like again, it, it'll be thirty minutes before we actually realize that that's what's what, what the setup is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, how many how many times do you think you've seen the movie? Oh, you know, I don't I don't tend to watch movies over and over and over again, even if I like them, but probably a dozen times. Oh Easily wow. A dozen. Yeah. Okay. I'm Mike. And I'm Allison. We've both been guests on We Are Movies before. We love talking movies with Johnny. But I'm a jealous boy. You are. That's why we've decided to talk movies with, with each other. We started our own podcast called You, you Made, made me, me Watch. Each week we make each other watch a movie the other has never seen. You Made Me Watch. New episodes every Friday. I mean, coming back to it, have there been things that you tend to pick up with each watch? Because I, I felt it feels dense. It feels like there's a lot oh, there. There, you know, I, I, because it is so, it's an, it's a long movie. It's like two, uh, two ten or something like yeah. that. It, there's a lot going on. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff just, Oh, I completely forgot this sequence. I, I completely forgot that, that, that they did this really wonderful thing. There's, there's a, there's a lot. I didn't, you know, I didn't realize the, the guy that plays his stunt advisor. I love yes. that guy. And I don't know who he is. Uh, he's also in the commentary um that is chuck bale okay playing he, chuck barton okay well you, you just have to wonder when the it's the same first name if he's basically playing a version right. of himself um i remember he he was the one then who got featured credit and chuck bale in the in the opening credits yes. okay. and i'm not sure that he's done a whole lot but he was just so at ease in his role and I forgot how uh, how much he had to do. He had he had a lot going on in that film. And I speak for a minute about Alex Rocco because I love Alex Rocco. Oh, of course, yeah. Alex Rocco plays the the closest thing we have to a just a true bad guy, or at least for our purposes, the the sheriff who's trying to stop everything. I love Alex Rocco, but what I always like to say, Alex Rocco is who you get when you can't get Paul Sorvino. <laughs> he's sort of a, a poor man's Paul Sorvino, and he's. Yeah, and again, it's the it, he's so mar he's the blusteriest sheriff since Buford T. Justice, I think. Yeah, uh, but but still, he's he is within the context of this film a necessary evil. I mean, you have to have that th that thorn that they're that they're having to deal with. But it's just a fun little part. Well, he he functions in the plot very well because mm -hmm. there's this this constant threat that adds to. Steve Railsback's paranoia. Um, part of him thinking the reason Peter O'Toole would want to kill him is because then he doesn't have this one person that's left to tell the cops that 
some, that a stuntman actually did die. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and who's I going to miss him. Right. Yeah. And he, I love his bits with, um, with O'Toole because with Alex Rocco's bits with that O'Toole, because there is this kind of, there's an antagonistic relationship and there's him just saying, I will arm every man with a shotgun to shoot everybody on your crew. <laughs> yes. If you're still, if you're here. still here three days later. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there, but, and then even at like the very end of the movie, when he's saying it again to him on the walkie talkie, there's a bit of jest in it, you know, mm-hmm. like th- there's this kind of, maybe it's a relief that he's finally leaving, but it's like it's it's almost like it's a movie that's being made where everybody's in on the joke yes yes everybody gets their part everybody gets what's it you know it, there's so much lightning in a bottle here i mean what we were saying before about richard rush he did not distinguish himself i mean if you're a huge huge movie fan you've heard of freebie and the bean or something like yes. that he did not distinguish himself as a as as an auteur this was his moment Yes. Uh, the guy that did the music, Dominic Frontieri, there's some sensational, hummable. The theme is just it, it gets you. Well, that uh, that first opening yeah. scene is carried by the score. There's very Absolutely. little dialogue. And he's, you know, he's a decent composer, but he did not set the world on fire either. But yeah. this this one time, it's perfect. Yeah. Steve Grossback did not have a stellar career, but this one time. It's just like everything just landed perfectly. This was the best work from so many different people at the same time. Yes. I think yeah. that's how it happened to just, like I said, lightning in a bottle. It just it just worked. That's a good way to put it. And, and even Peter O'Toole, I heard in the commentary that this was the first movie of his that he watched. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> he, he said that he didn't like watching himself on film, but he was so intrigued by the script that he said i have to see how it was done mm-hmm. and i and i think that's kind of incredible uh, i mean i can't imagine being the direct the guy who directed peter o'toole in the first movie of his own that he decided to watch and and, and it's almost impossible to ever say this was peter o'toole's greatest performance so you right. can't really say the greatest you know that, that but you know obviously there's an awful, awful lot of people who think that the stuntman is right up there Yes, well, Eli, and, Eli Cross is one of his greatest performances. And I watched, uh, he, he's in the commentary and there's also an interview with him where he keeps saying that it was the right role at the right time. Oh, that's uh, good. That's, that's a good way of, yeah. Yeah, because this would have been 1980. He was, you know, in by Hollywood standards, he's an old man now. Right, right. Um, uh, which still isn't that old, but <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, he's, he's older than everyone else in the movie. One of the things that struck me when I went back and watched it, is, Oh, he doesn't look nearly as old as I had in my head. He was, he, he, he looked in this movie. Yeah. Um, well, he's, he has that thing where he's, he has like a wrinkled face, Yeah. but he's very, he's so handsome and he's so <laughs> energetic and he has this wonderful like mane of hair. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't play the part old. Um, no. And, and he's he's not even I just looked up his his he was born in 32 so he's right. he's not even 50 years old here. He's not an old man in no, the in the movie. No. It's just comparatively he's acting with 30 year olds. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, exactly. Um but he yeah, he keeps saying how it was the movie that it, it was him finally like I always say there's a moment where an actor graduates to a new type of character mm. and that you know he's not He's not playing Lawrence of Arabia. He's not the lead. He is a mentor character of sorts. He's, as we mentioned, an omnipotent character. I always, uh, one thing I always bring up is Rio Bravo, 
where I feel like that movie came at a moment where John Wayne was about to switch from being the younger leading man to an older mentor role. And you can tell because he's in these scenes where he is acting opposite Angie Dickinson, his love interest, and something's not connecting. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's the age difference, obviously. Yeah, sure, but sure, yeah. um, and, and so, yeah, he, he keeps bringing that up. And one thing he also mentioned is that the unfortunate thing of the movie is that it wasn't released, it escaped. I was see, I was trying to think. I, I, I remembered that line and I was going to say it, but I wasn't sure this was the movie he was talking about. So it is this one that he yes. that, because there's a wonderful backstory here where uh, it was originally going to be made by one studio and originally I mean Rush worked on this for a decade or more hmm. or a little bit less than a decade. They, they had, I heard he worked for eight years to get it financed and in place, and then I think it was another two years after it was filmed before it was released. It might have been a total of ten years. Yeah. The, he was assigned to it by Columbia in the early seventies. And then that didn't work out as movies, you know, tend sometimes they don't work out. And there was a lot, like you say, a lot. He was working on financing. It eventually got distributed, if that's the right word, by 20th Century Fox. But it's a wildly expensive independent film in many, yeah. many ways. It's it's a big budget independent film. This movie, by the way, today, just to give you an idea about how unattached to a studio this is. You can watch this on YouTube. It's really? on YouTube from beginning to, I don't mean like with commercials. I don't mean like you pay for it. It's the whole movie is on YouTube and nobody seems to care. <laughs> it's just there. It's been there for years. Nobody's you flagging it or hunting it. Nobody's down. nobody cares. I mean, it's got, <laughs> somebody's got to own it, but yeah. nobody seems to care that this entire movie can be watched on YouTube. I mean, that brings me to, so first of all, I ended up getting the DVD because the Blu-ray is long out of print and sure. I think is in the 50 something dollar range. So if if nobody's really fighting for the rights, this is where I'd say, I think the Criterion Collection or somebody could- Oh, uh, wouldn't that be nice? That would be great. So but yeah, let me you, you're gonna mention. About, yeah, that the, the, they did uh, Anchor Bay, which is usually a very, very low budget people that, that release a lot of things that nobody else dares release, put this movie out. <laughs> I was shopping one day at a weird little antique store that had a whole bunch of a whole a whole bunch of disc, discounted DVDs, and I saw one that was a full-length documentary about the making of the stuntman, and I grabbed it because I, it was one of my favorite films. And come to find out that that's now been released with this Anchor Bay thing as a two-disc set. So you've got the first disc, which is probably what you were watching mm. because it had the commentary track. And then this completely separate second disc where Richard Rush in a bravura display of ego creates a full length, cheaply made, mm -hmm. mostly shot on video documentary about his struggles to make the movie. And it's absolutely fascinating in the way you get into his head as he's explaining how wonderful he is. <laughs> it's really quite remarkable. Yeah. That, 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 I mean, I, let me go off on a tangent. Of course. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. The greatest episode of Star Trek The Next Generation is something called The Inner Light. 
this guy that wrote the inner light and anybody who's a star trek fan who just woke up and said oh yeah the inner light uh this great thing that ages picard through a whole lifetime in his head and this is a lot a lot to explain this guy the writer never really had another thing but his his lightning in a bottle was this episode that somehow through the casting and through the performances and everything else and it was a really really good story that was all he ever did so he has spent his life making bank on the fact that he was the guy who wrote the inner light <laughs> there have been comic book follow-ups uh, at one point he was trying to pitch a a, a sequel episode uh, to the thing uh, there's a flute that figures into it he sells replicas of the flute on his website i mean he has gone all in on this is what he's known for and richard rush's full again full length documentary i mean it's almost <laughs> as long as the movie was full length documentary is richard rush going all in on this is what i'm remembered for wow that i, I definitely need to see that um because that sounds incredible i will i will loan you my copy as long as i get it back okay yeah, yeah. no certainly i will and i'll say that Richard Rush is exactly the type of filmmaker that I am kind of obsessed with, which is the the person who he made a movie that's very ambitious on a storytelling level, on a visual level. It's not a paycheck man in the chair film by any means. Oh no. And yet he's a man who never became a household name. As you mentioned, this was his lightning in the bottle, but he never really went on to anything greater or nearly or even as great as this and it's one of those things where it's just like in an alternate universe a man with this talent could have became a, a david lean or a stanley kubrick or a, you know a person who just got money thrown at them absolutely <laughs> to, absolutely to make their vision um and what you just described reminds me have you ever heard of um uh to go on my own tangent have you ever heard of uh, uh gary graver no that's the name i don't know gary graver was uh the closest collaborator of Orson Welles for the last 15 years okay. of Orson Welles' life. Um, and mostly worked for free for Orson Welles. He, okay. he worked on all of his films. He worked on F is for Fake. Uh, most of his unfinished films he worked on, uh, The Other Side of the Wind, uh, his, his failed talk show pilot, all of those things. And uh, Gary Graver, to pay the bills, ended up directing a lot of cheap B-movies and pornographic movies. And that's actually the story of how Orson Welles ended up editing part of a pornographic movie because <laughs> uh, Gary Graver needed a free up time to work on Other Side of the Wind. But every now and then he did make some little, some lesser movies that showed his talent because he was a very talented cinematographer uh, and a director and towards the end of his career he did a little thing I think called a Gary Graver movie and it's him sitting in a chair showing clips from his movies talking about how good they were before the studio chopped them up or <laughs> all of these things and uh, and then you know obviously he was waiting for the other side of the wind to come out so it could vindicate him and everyone could go oh wow he's a great cinematographer and unfortunately it didn't end up getting released right. in his yeah. lifetime yeah. but that's the type but of person I'm always interested in and that was the thing. You don't really hear a lot of struggles with the studio with, with this, with, with the stuntman, Richard Rush. Right. Made the, there's not an expanded director's cut. <laughs> there's Richard Rush going off and talking about how he made the film. And there's some deleted scenes, but 
this is the movie he wanted to make. And it sounds like that partially comes at the cost of the eight years that <laughs> went into securing <laughs> yes. the finance. There's a great line about his career. Kenneth Turin of the, of the LA Times said about Rush that his career seems to be followed by the kind of miserable luck that never seems to afflict the untalented. Mm. And I, yeah. I kind of like that. It's like, here's a man who had a lot going for him and it just never quite worked out for him. And if you watch this movie isolated and you told me, hey, Richard Rush was this great auteur that made a, you know, has an illustrious filmography, I would believe you because this this has the confidence of somebody who mm -hmm. is an established auteur. It has that sort of thematic consistency, like it, the way it keeps coming back to these themes of reality in the, the dialogue and in the way that the very careful intentional way that everything is shot. I mentioned kind of how certain shots look very artificial. Uh, like when you were looking through the quote unquote, look the looking glass. Um, right. There's a great moment when Steve Railsback first makes his appearance in costume shaved with the new hair. And it's this shot from inside of like a piece of wood. There's like a hole in this wood. You can't quite tell what it is. And he walks into the frame and there's a sunset behind him. And it's such a gorgeous shot. It, that it seems it's highlighting the artificiality of filmmaking. A <laughs> we're little making bit. a movie here. We're making a movie here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, you, you were talking about porn earlier. He didn't actually, he didn't come up through porn, but Richard Rush, you know, his background was in exploitation cinema in the, in the, in the sixties, you know, hell's angels on wheels and, <laughs> and, and, and of love and desire and, and nonsense right. like that. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with anything, but his, his background was in really cheap, filmmaking i mean that is the definition of a journeyman who mm -hmm. was an auteur at heart i think yeah. uh and he and he got his moment yes and yep. then unfortunately i was i was going to say i had seen one other film by richard rush before i saw this and that was uh color of night <laughs> notorious <laughs> i've never seen it but i know how notorious it is yes or uh, i think the razzie for the worst ever or something like for the worst picture of the year yes along was, those lines i mean it was it was just a real, a real clunker. Uh, Bruce Willis kind of tried to reinvent himself because it's like an erotic thriller and uh, not very good, but uh, it, it is interesting. Like it's well, not, because I feel like movies like that, it's easy to kind of write them off as like a, you know, oh, it's a basic instinct cash grab or something like that. But the movie has some strange eccentricities that now that I have a little more understanding of Richard Rush as a filmmaker, I can see him trying to do something different and kind of do an interesting spin on what was probably a script thrown on his desk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hey, you got, hey, like, are you tired of eating the one canned food that you have in your, <laughs> you know, like you'll have to do this script. You'd have to do this one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, it, it, speaking of Richard Rush, also was the hairdresser for this movie. Uh, oh. <laughs> that was one thing. I mentioned Peter O'Toole's gorgeous hair he says uh, that that was richard rush i uh, had no idea have you listened to the commentary yet no i haven't i you okay. know I, like i said i've watched this other feature commentary this 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 documentary essentially i have not listened to the commentary on the actual disc okay it, it's yeah i i do recommend it i think it's I one will. of the yeah. best i've heard you have barbara hershey and steve rails back and i think rocco are all in a room together okay and then and i think it's hard to tell because, uh, well, because then uh, Peter O'Toole was recorded separately and edited in. And then um, 
Richard Rush, some of it is him in the room with them and some of it is stuff that he added after, I think. It seemed like okay. he was also in charge of the commentary. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Right. And then um, also uh, Chuck Bale is in there. And also uh, an interesting actress, uh, Sharon Farrell is in the commentary yeah, she, a little bit. She kicked around a lot in the 70s and 80s. Yes. I, I, I knew who she was, but. I had seen her in Lone Wolf McQuaid. She plays okay, Chuck Norris's go. ex-wife in that film. Uh, but she's another character. She's maybe two or three scenes, but she's very eccentric and memorable. I just looked something up. You'll like this. Chuck Bale was, in fact, a stunt coordinator in real life. So clearly he's playing himself. Mm-hmm. He directed not uh, the Cannonball Run. No, no. That would be too high class. Cannonball Run 2? No, no, that would be even Cannonball or Cannonball Run 2 would be too high class. He directed the Gumball Rally, <laughs> which is like a poor man's Cannonball Run. Sure. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it actually, it, you know, your, your, your auteur friends are going to say, well, it was first. And it was. <laughs> Cannonball Run came out after the Gumball Rally, but Chuck Bale directed Gumball Rally. That is incredible. That's I, I had no idea. I'm just tapping some things in as we're talking. That's I mean, that's marvelous. That's the genre of film that can only be directed by a stuntman, I suppose. Absolutely. Like, that he <laughs> he was he like I keep saying poor man's. He was a poor man's Hal Needham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that's a good way to put it. Which yeah, kind of, there you go. Which kind of brings us back. I wanted to mention you were saying that uh, Rocco's character is the the, the Buford T Justice. The Buford of this movie. T Justice. Not quite that bad, but right. Uh, well, and that adds something that there's this there's this lighthearted quality to the whole film where even though there are serious implications here, mm-hmm. there is Steve Railsback is running for the law from the majority of the film. We don't know why. Uh, we know that he seems to be suffering from PTSD right. uh, from the war. There is a man who has died. Yeah, <laughs> accidentally. That's right. Fairly early on, yes. we, we, we kill somebody. There's the dark implication that Cross... Peter O'Toole's character may have intentionally left him to die just to get a shot. And like all of these very macabre moving parts. And then like the, the cop character as being as if you look at Smokey and the Bandit with Buford T justice, they never pose an actual threat to each other. They are absolutely, you never fear for anybody's life. It's the, (laughs) it's, it's the roadrunner and the coyote, right? They have, they, they need each other exactly for it to work (laughs) and watching this movie i thought that was the clash of tones was brilliant because it left me in a place where i legitimately did not know how the movie could pan out right i thought this could end with steve rails back dying or it could end on a lighthearted scene of him yelling at him about getting the right amount of money while peter o'toole flies off in the chopper one of those two things might happen yeah did did you the first time you watched it do you remember having Oh, feelings I, about how it could go no i absolutely there, there, you that, that's one of the you know anytime you're watching a movie one of the things you don't want to have happen is assume that it's going to end well right or or or, or for that matter assume it's going to end badly you really all the way to the end you really didn't know how this thing would go we talked so much about how in the first half hour there's all these different things that completely throw you off the last 10 minutes are like that where there's all these sudden appearances of people where they're not really supposed to be hmm. that makes you wonder, well, who's, who's aligned with who here and what is really happening. And you don't really know until the very, very end yeah. how things work out. I, I, I always hate to, you know, this 
40 year old movie and i always hate to, <laughs> to to say on your show how things work out we did mention spock died didn't we in star trek we did II? mention that yeah, spock okay died, okay fine yeah which sorry if you're listening to this and you haven't seen <laughs> star trek too yeah i mean and I'm, I'm so glad that you had the experience as as well versed in films as you are and how as as how much you appreciate films to have all this all these years not seen this one and have that sort of wash over you yes and i'm sure in your experience you really didn't know how this was going to wind up and i think i saw it at the perfect point in my life too because maybe had i seen it five years ago or something when i was you know the guy who thought pulp fiction was the best movie ever made or whatever <laughs> i i the best indie movie ever made the best indie movie right 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 it's not star <laughs> trek 2 um but i i think i could have watched it and cherry picked a bit more and been like oh i don't know if i buy this relationship i don't know if um like i, I don't think i would have been as attracted to the misdirection as i am now mm -hmm. at this age where i just admire anything that's ambitious or interesting about a movie and then but also the fact that with all of the misdirection and all of the stuff in the story that's led up to chance when you watch it again and you think about the whole story the movie knows exactly how it's going to end when it starts i think that's something right. that's it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like somebody wrote it as it went along. It doesn't feel sloppy or pieced together. Everything makes sense in the context after you watch the whole thing. That's um, that's fair. I was just going to say, getting back to Roger Ebert's original review, the, the, the term that kept coming up is he felt cheated. Right. And, I, and I, you know, as, as great a talent as, as a critic as he was, I don't think Roger Ebert got it. You were supposed to, I mean, you were really supposed to feel cheated. He points out that, well, when the director, when the real director, when Richard Rush is making the movie, he only shows you what he wants to show you. So if he wants to not reveal this or not reveal that, then you don't mm -hmm. get to see that. And, and, I'm, and I'm reading this, I'm like, well, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's sort of the point here. Yes, it's, it's a fun lark of a movie where you aren't being shown everything. Right. And you don't know what's going to happen. And I mean, I think Richard Rush actually quotes Ebert in the commentary. Oh, okay. In the scene, in that opening, that early scene that I mentioned on the beach, uh, where they fool all of the crowd into thinking that a real gory scene has just happened. Um, he says that, I don't know if he mentions Ebert by name. He just says that a reviewer said that they felt cheated by the movie. That's and, it. Yeah. And he, and he mentions, he said the reviewer like mentioned this scene and he says, but I think, I don't know, the dust goes up when the dust clears, you see them, you know, like ideally they could have time to get in the position to look like they've lost their limbs while the, <laughs> like, that's the magic of the movie. Keep, He's like, keep, keep telling yourself that Richard. That's, that's just, <laughs> fine. that's, that's fine. But also it's like, if you want an explanation, if you want to see beyond the dust and see them putting together this film, that entirely goes against the, the central core of the movie, which is that is is that Peter O'Toole's character is this man manipulating reality. I also wanted to mention a, uh, an important scene where he ends up showing a, a nude scene that uh, Barbara Hershey films, ends up showing it to her parents by accident or supposedly by, by accident. accident yeah. <laughs> right. And then he has to tell her about it shortly before she has to film a scene where she's crying. And it's such a wonderful shot because you see him say to her, oh, your parents saw your nude scene. I'm sorry. And he walks away. She starts getting tears. And then you see them push the Nazi 
symbols behind her and the music kicks on and they're now filming the scene and that's when it hits you that oh he just told her this to get the tears out of her for the scene <laughs> it's very you know uh, uh kubrick and shelly duvall on the shining that kind mm-hmm. of um, yeah. yeah but then and the thing that barbara hershey mentions in the commentary is what's funny about the scene is that she's crying about something that's fairly benign you know it's like yeah it's unfortunate yeah, that your parents are embarrassed said but you're embarrassed not... yeah <laughs> but it's for the it's for a, a scene of much heavier implications <laughs> in the movie within the movie that's being yeah. filmed. Yeah. I also just wanted to mention the scene um, when uh, uh, we find out what Steve Railsback did, which I won't mention also, if yeah. we're not talking about the ending of the movie, I won't okay. mention what he did do. But I think the way that scene plays out is maybe the moment I finally got the movie. <laughs> like, oh, wow, okay. Because because that scene takes you through maybe three major emotions. It's it's romantic, it's intense, and then it's really silly at the end of it. <laughs> yes, that's uh, the. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure Rush said in the commentary. Uh, one of the problems he had with the studios is nobody could pigeonhole this. Sure. Because it does go through so many different. Sometimes sometimes it's slapstick. Yeah. Sometimes it's ridiculous. I mean, some of those uh, stunt sequences are silly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just goofy. And like you said, sometimes it's genuinely emotional and it, it just, you don't know, are you watching a romance? Are you watching a, a war thriller? Are you watching an action film? Are you watching a comedy? Are you watching a drama? You just, you really don't know what you're watching. And I think it's such an amazing feat to make a film that is all about the artificiality of filmmaking, about the emotional manipulation brought on by filmmakers, and for that movie to successfully emotionally manipulate me to the point where I, I feel the whole roller coaster of emotions and, and varying intensities. And then actually I'm in suspense in the final act about what's going to happen. And it it gives you everything, all of the emotions you associate with great movies while kind of having fun with the general idea of what movies do. Does that make sense? No, that does. It does. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a, it's like, like I said, it's just a marvelous moment of movie making. I mean, I don't know that anybody has made a movie quite like, not to say that it's the greatest movie ever made. Right. We've already established that. That's Star Trek too, yes. Yeah. Or or that it's or that it's necessarily in some ways even necessarily a particularly good movie. But it is so absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it is so you, you, I don't like using unique when we're talking about anything because unique means one of a kind, nothing duplicates it. But it's hard to come up with a similar film to The Stuntman. No, yeah, I agree. It really is hard to come up with something that says, you know, it's, Stuntman is kind of like this. No, not really. It's yeah. really one of a kind. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, I, and I'm so happy that you picked this movie because I... I'm just delighted you had the experience and I'm glad it was a positive one. I knew it would be, but I'm, I'm really glad it was a positive experience. <laughs> I, like, I like that. Cause actually I, I do want, if we're going to uh, psychoanalyze me for a moment, <laughs> uh, <laughs> cause you, you brought it up and you said, I think you'd like this. Did you just mean that generally as no, no, if you I love movies, you like this? I'm just, you know, getting a vibe, listening to your show and knowing you as I have over the years, I just, this seemed like a piece of movie making about movie making mm. that would really get under your skin. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is okay. you, you mentioned, I, I obviously won't say how it pans out, but you mentioned in the third act, there's a lot of people in places where they're not supposed to be. And it's 
it's unsettling. There is uh, a moment where the actor who Steve Railsback is doubling for in the movie, who only shows up periodically, he doesn't really play into yeah. the story. Yeah. Uh, he he says something that hints that he knows a lot more. Like he 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 just kind of lets <laughs> that he knows a lot about what's happening, and you're like, how? You know, he does, he has no real relationship to any of the characters in a substantial way that would you would know it's a weird part because you know you you get the impression he's a major star yes but in this film he's not an, a, an important character and the actor who plays him is not particularly important right that's part part of me thought it would have been interesting if he had been played by an important actor because it, <laughs> it made me think about uh jack nicholson in broadcast news if okay. you ever saw, did you ever see? Oh, broadcast? I love broadcast news. Like the way that he plays the anchor, you know, the uh -huh. big, he's the guy that everyone sees on TV, but he's, the movie's not about him. So right. he's played by this major actor, Jack Nicholson, and he, you just see him in like one or two scenes kind of popping in and out. And I, he people my age are coming up with a second reference to, and I have to say it since we've already got them thinking about Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds played a stuntman in a film called Hooper. Oh. And he was the stuntman for the famous actor in the movie and the famous actor in the movie it wasn't it wasn't him playing himself but the famous actor in the movie was played by adam west that's <laughs> the original tv batman and i just oh that's adam west it was such a such a goofy thing you know jack nicholson's a much better example sure but you know you've got this you're playing the part of the guy who's the stuntman for this other guy and in, the, in our in, in in the case of Hooper, we actually know the other guy. And in a moment, like I, you know, sometimes people look down on the whole idea of movie stardom and or stunt casting or whatever. But I feel like there is a genuine value sometimes to having a, an actor who we associate. We have baggage with that actor. We yeah. have associations, and so, you know, when Peter O'Toole first shows up in the movie, and we've held off on showing him for a little bit, he carries this weight with him that when he does descend from the heavens in his helicopter and we see this low angle shot of him coming out and commanding people. And we also at the same time are thinking, Oh, that's Peter O'Toole, you yeah. know? So <laughs> he, he carries so much authority with him in that way. Sure. Um, I, the one I, I know I said I was that was the last thing I was going to mention, but the one other thing I wanted to mention and Richard Rush, I mean, this is another thing that I think is, this is the type of thing that only an auteur does like somebody who who's thinking very hard about, how they want to affect the audience in subtle ways. Um, there's a scene where Railsback is watching the dailies of when the first stuntman died. You see him inside of the car when the water came in and he's watching it with this fear now thinking that could be him. And in the commentary, um, Richard Rush says, and he says in the commentary, I've never said this in any, any interview ever. So this is an exclusive. He says he filmed actual little bits with Steven Railsback in the car. So occasionally when it cuts to the dailies, it's Railsback. So subliminally, we're seeing him in that situation. Oh, wow. Okay. That's great. That's again, that's manipulative filmmaking. Right, right. That's his yeah. own example of a manipulative filmmaking. Which it kind can of ties. I, can I say something stupid really, really fast? Oh, of course. In Hooper, Adam West actually plays Adam West. I just, I, I, oh. <laughs> I, 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 I'm saying he didn't, he did. So there, fine. Even better. Uh, yes, yeah, even better now. And, so, and I also want to mention as far as Adam West bringing uh, baggage to a role, obviously he played he played a character i think named Catman on the fairly odd parents 
perfect perfect right. stunt casting exactly hey yeah and then i but i think um by richard rush being a guy who wants to kind of manipulate the audience and play with reality and that is what o'toole's character is doing that relates to what you were saying about how he kind of sees parts in in parts of peter o'toole's character is what richard rush probably wants to be exactly right? and again when you see this documentary that rush made about how wonderful rush is you'll get a big kick out of it yes and, I, and i'll have to and and i implore everybody if they haven't yet listening to watch this movie and um i i didn't know of him until very recently but i i have a at, at this moment i have a bit of a, an infatuation with richard rush because i think uh he did some amazing things and uh hopefully we say his name for a long time yeah um but thank you and so as much we, as we said at the start of the show you know he uh, this this whole this whole thing is dedicated to his memory he passed away just just days ago yeah amazing i messaged you when that happened and i said i hope we did we didn't kill him um i usually i read negative reviews at the end of the episode but i think today's negative review is roger Ebert, ebert's review which we have yeah. a- amply responded to I think. roger ebert felt cheated roger ebert was wrong <laughs> sorry end. roger that, that's a guy that's a guy we we don't need to sing his praises he got his time in the sun oh, uh, this is richard rush's that's, episode that's right that's right <laughs> um is there anything else you wanted to say before no thank up? you johnny this is uh, congratulations on two seasons two seasons I, I think in television terms <laughs> on two years of doing this what like 70 or 80 shows right uh this yeah the 80th this is, is the 80th thing? show congratulations yeah. i mean that's dedication and and they've been fun I've, I've enjoyed doing them and i enjoy listening to them and i hope you do a lot more and i hope we Thank get you. to talk about one of my other favorite films a year from now yes yeah i hope so i i know citizen i feel like citizen kane maybe we should save that for the fifth anniversary oh i like that uh I like that. we oh, did we we did float around kelly's heroes a couple ideas so there's some some marvelous things we can yes. pick there's never right. a shortage of movies to talk about of course yeah, yeah so yeah thank, thank you, you very much all right everybody that wraps up another episode of we are movies thank you so much for listening and of course thank you for your support over the last two years if you're an old fan if you're a new listener welcome i hope you stick around i've really enjoyed these past two years this is honestly and and i'm talking sincerely right now i i know i tend to be an ironic person but i i i genuinely mean it when i say that this is uh, my my favorite thing to do it's it's like the only thing in my life that i'm completely in control of and um in case you couldn't tell from the awfully inconsistent quality of it (laughs) that's the only thing that i'm totally in control of so thank you for listening Thank you to everyone who's ever been a guest up to this point and um, helped me to make this the podcast I want it to be. Thank you so much to Matt for being the first guest and for being the guest in this episode. Definitely go follow him on all the social media stuff. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter at QuizMatt. And if you haven't yet, and I will plug it once again, you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at We Are Movies Pod. You can also like us on Facebook at We Are Movies. You can also follow me 
on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Johnny Mockney, J-O-H-N-N-Y-M-O-C-N-Y. And um, lastly, if you haven't, I always welcome reviews on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Just uh, the feedback is always welcome. So that is all I have for you today. I have a few episodes backlogged, so I will be back with you very, very soon. And until then, I am Johnny Mockney saying, do you not know that King Kong the first was just three foot six inches tall? He only came up to Fay Ray's belly button. If God could do the tricks that we can do, he'd be a happy man.